Insiders, an ASI Media podcast covering the topics that matter most to the promotional products industry. I'm Executive Editor Sarah Lavendusky, and today I'm joined by business valuation expert Dave Bookbinder. He's the Managing Director at B. Riley Financial, and we'll be speaking today about when to start planning for the exit phase of a company, what that process looks like, and how to get the most value for your business. So thank you, Dave, for being with us today. We appreciate it. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. And don't forget to post your questions in the chat for Dave, and we'll address them as time allows. So this topic, we've talked about this before um, for a few articles for ASI Media. It's always relevant, as we've talked about, because every company has an exit phase, whatever that looks like. Um, there comes a time, you know, when the owner is going to dissolve it or sell it, depending on on um, who's ready to buy. But right now, actually, in promo, we're seeing a lot of M and A activity. It's really heating up. Um, so this is especially pertinent at the moment. So I wanted to start at the top with you, Dave. If we could just talk about what is the exit stage specifically, and what are the different forms it can take? Like, what can it look like, generally speaking? Yeah. So the exit generally, as you described it, is the sale of a business, right? But what it looks like, I think, can take on different um, flavors depending on everyone's individual circumstances. So for example, I think everyone who's watching and listening right now would love to think that the sale of their business is going to be a nice, smooth, planned event, coincidental with retirement, and they ride off into the sunset with a big wad of cash. That's ideal, but it doesn't always happen that way. Uh, sometimes there's the uh, uh-oh moments where sometimes a business has to be put up on the market. Uh, maybe there's a, a death or an illness. Someone's incapacitated. So that's an unplanned exit. Uh, sometimes there's a business divorce where maybe you've got several shareholders or you know, co-owners, if you will, and uh, there's an argument of some sort, and now we have to dissolve things. So it doesn't always go according to the plan which is why I always talk about the idea of an exit as a process. It's not just the event of selling a business, it's the getting prepared for it so that if you're going all the way out to that end game at retirement, you've got a plan in place. But more importantly, if something unexpected happens, you're not caught off guard. So along those lines, how long does the process normally take if it's done properly? Why does it require some time and attention? Yeah, I mean, look, that again would vary based on everybody's individual circumstances. I think most would tell you, ideally, it's probably a three to six month process if everything goes smoothly. Uh, It can certainly take a whole lot longer than that. Uh, I will tell you that in my early days as an investment banker, uh, I was working on a transaction, uh, commuting almost every week up to Connecticut to sell this uh, cordage and twine manufacturer. Been in business for 100 years, great story. Uh, had great interest in buy from several buyers and we're moving along through the process. And I was early in my career, so I was already counting the bonus check in my mind and how I was going to spend it. And then during environmental due diligence, it turned out that they were dumping toxic chemicals into this little creek behind their plant for the hundred years. So it blew up. So why does it take some time? Because the, the process starts with your intermediary, ideally an investment banker or business broker putting together an offering memorandum of some sort. Sometimes it's called confidential information memorandum. And that really contains all of the documentation that a potential buyer is going to need to make an informed decision. So besides having historic financial performance and projected financial performance, it's gonna contain things like the value proposition, why why this business is, should be considered to be an attractive opportunity, what the industry landscape looks like, uh, process also consists of your advisor preparing the management team to go through 
the management presentations so that when buyers start to come in to kick the tires and start asking the tough questions, they're prepared on how they're supposed to be responding to those things, obviously truthfully, but some, some questions can be tricky as uh, potential buyers are starting to ask questions that could make a seller feel uncomfortable. So then you get into the due diligence phase, having attorneys paper it, legal documentation, and that's after you get through all the negotiations and then you get to the closing and everything that goes with that. So there's a lot involved here and, that, and that's why it takes time. It's almost like what's under the hood, right? Like there's the surface part of it, what it actually looks like on the outside, but what's actually under the hood and when you start to vet it, what does it actually look like? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so- for sure. And one of the things I, I always try to analogize when I talk, analogize, when I talk about business valuation, one of the methods we use to value companies is a market-based approach. And the analogy is think about buying or selling a home. So it, it's very similar, but we do it in the same context as valuing a business. So if you're going to put your house up for sale, what's the first thing you're going to do? You're going to contact a realtor, have them give you an appraisal, right? Have them develop the comps. Well, it's the same kind of thing, essentially, on the business valuation side. But in similar context as buying a house or selling that house, if you want to get it ready for the market, your realtor is going to tell you you need to replace the carpets in the living room, you need to paint the kitchen. And then once you have an offer and you're starting to go through the process, that's when the building inspector comes in and starts to tear apart the idea that maybe the windows aren't sealed properly and all the other little uh, things that maybe we didn't think about the front end. So it's a very similar process, like you said, getting under the hood. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it sounds like it's not just, oh, I think I'll retire, you know, next year. I guess we should start thinking about getting our ducks in a row. You know, it sounds like it's not like immediately before retirement, this is something you're starting to think about. But my guess is that, you know, and we've talked about this and, and it, it seems like it's it, the assumption is true is that a lot of people put off doing this. And why why is that? Yeah. First, let me address what you just alluded to about the timing thing. I mean, I, I think ideally uh, business owners should be thinking about this strategically almost from day one. I was watching an episode of Shark Tank last week and one of the, uh, the, the uh, business owners that was doing their pitch was talking about other investors who were talking exit and the sharks didn't like that. They're, they were adamant that the business owner should not be thinking exit that early in the game. And I get it where they're coming from as an investor. They want the investor to be thinking commitment long term. We're going to take this until they're ready to exit. But th the reality is um, it, it can happen anytime. So you have to be prepared three to five years. Ideally, I think gives you a good runway to start getting all of your ducks in order. This way, you're not overwhelmed by the process. And part of that is just making sure that you have several years of financial performance that are documented, i.e. audited. And you can start to match your forecast to your budget, how successful you are in hitting that forecast, right? So then you've got some data points when you're going into the market and you can, you can actually look back and say how you've done relative to what plan was. The reason why people don't do it, that's a tough one. I mean, that's a, that's a, a psychology question, uh, probably way above my pay grade, but I'll tell you what I've been told by uh, my friends who are doing this day to day and by some folks that I've talked to when they were in the process. And they really don't know what they're going to do next, right? It's their baby. And they, they like to joke that, well, my spouse doesn't want me home every day. And I don't think I can play golf every day or go sailing every day. So I don't know what I'm going to do. And I think the other component is that it, there is that daunting idea of giving up their baby, right? And in the absence of creating some kind of legacy, like where kids are involved and the business can continue on and they're truly going to exit and cut their ties, that, that's, that's tough. That's loss. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And and there's some psychology in there that I, I certainly couldn't explain. But I think uh, folks who are watching and listening here will get it. I think you also um, you alluded to a few minutes ago the fact that sometimes it's the exit is unplanned. So yeah. God forbid the owner is incapacitated or dies like things happen. Um, it you know you're you're leaving the the people who are the survivors who are left behind. They now have to figure out what's going on. And this business sometimes lives in the owner's head, you know. And it's like it, it's too owner dependent. So that's that's another related aspect is like just for the people who are you know your your family your your management team like you have to have this you have to share the knowledge of of the business just in case something happens because life is so unpredictable yeah and if you want to talk about uh, a valuation component with regard to that there's something that's referred to as a key man discount so if all the knowledge lives in one person's head mm. yeah as a buyer, when you think about that, you understand that there's a whole lot of risk there. So if that person gets hit by the proverbial bus, uh, maybe the business isn't going to perform the way we think it's going to perform. And you're going to get less money up front for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and also in another part of, of uh, and especially in our industry, we have a lot of this is where, you know, the, the, the family members, the kids have grown up in the business. They may want to take it over when mom and dad um, retire. Um, what should be considered when the the kids are interested in taking over the business? That's a great question. So look, everybody wants to create and leave a legacy, right? We talked about this, the business being the business owner's baby. So it's no different than their children in a lot of respects. But the real challenge that I've seen and I've heard from uh, some friends who work in the, uh, the succession planning space on the, on the family business side, there's a recurring theme that maybe all the siblings don't necessarily get along. Watch an episode of Succession on HBO, right? And you'll know what that looks like. And that's an extreme example. But holy cow, uh, you sure don't want that. But I think the bigger issue here is competence, right? So I, I've heard other folks uh, who are business owners who are preparing for exit offer some really sage advice that they told their kids before they come to work for them, they've got to spend X number of years working elsewhere. So whether it's working at a CPA firm to get their chops in accounting or finance, working at another business to understand operations, what have you. So something that would prepare them for the role so they don't just roll in on day one with the same last name as the business owner and, and think it's easy street. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to the actual transaction process, um, who should the owners enlist? We've talked about having like an advisory team. Who should the owners enlist to help them navigate this transaction process? And what are some of the common mistakes you see when people are looking for advisors f- for this specific purpose? Yeah, it's funny you asked that. A couple of years ago, I wrote an article called Thinking of Selling Your Business. Here's five things you need and one you don't. And the one you don't was valuation, uh, mm-hmm. ironically, because there are times where I can certainly add a ton of value in helping a business owner getting them on the right path. But when they're in that uh uh-oh moment where something happens and now they have to put the for sale sign on the front lawn, so to speak, my theoretical valuation, no matter how good it is, it doesn't help them. They need to have the buyers come in and kick the tires and really go to market and see what it's all about. So in that article, I actually talk about building a team, an advisory team. And it consists of your investment banker, the person or persons who are going to be taking you to the market and finding those potential buyers for you. A good attorney, and I I said in the article, not your brother-in-law who's the personal injury attorney. You need somebody who's skilled at papering the type of transaction that you're going to be entering into. A good accountant, and presumably if you've taken my advice on the planning process, you'll have upgraded your accounting team 
so that it's commensurate with your stage of development as a business before you go to market. In other words, you probably have grown up as a business that you're doing more than just paying a bookkeeper, you know, two days a week or something like that. It's a little more sophisticated, whether it's reviewed or audited statements. A wealth manager is probably a good person to have at the table too, because one of the other things that I, I like to remind folks is while valuation is important and structuring will help you determine what you're ultimately going to take away, there are times where you don't necessarily need to argue for every nickel in a transaction because if you're thinking big picture in terms of how you're going to live the rest of your life in retirement, you may be able to take less in the transaction, feel more comfortable about the buyer and the deal if your wealth manager is involved and they can invest the proceeds in a way that you'll be comfortable and still achieve all of your other objectives. The key in that whole thing is communication. Each of these people has to be working together on your behalf. You can't have them all just doing their own thing independently. So pick a quarterback. Usually it's going to be the investment banker in that instance, but make sure that they're all talking. So when you ask about the mistakes, um, being unprepared, right? Going it alone. Uh, a lot of folks like to think that, you know, I don't want to pay an advisor to, to do the transaction because I'm going to have to pay them a closing fee. So I don't know about you, if, if you've ever tried to sell a home, I, I thought, you know what, it's not that much work. I was going to try it once. I'm a relatively smart guy. And wow, I didn't know what I didn't know. Well, the same thing is true with selling your business. If you've never done it before, you're not skilled at negotiating and structuring and being the bad guy. I mean, when, when the, your intermediary runs the process and a buyer, potential buyer gets a book that says it's number eight, for example, or 28. They know that you've got an organized process going on by a intermediary that knows what they're doing. There are many other firms involved in the process. If they want to get this uh, piece of business, they need to sharpen their pencil, make a really good solid offer because there's going to be competition there. Um, another component with regard to that same thing is not recognizing financial buyers. I was actually talking to a client the other day who's contemplating taking his business to market himself. And because he's identified the key players in his industry and he thinks he knows them well. But what he doesn't know is that there may be uh, financial buyers out there that would be interested in using his business as a platform deal, meaning they'll pay more, or as a tuck-in to some of their other existing uh, businesses that they already own, and they'd fit in really neatly. And it's an opportunity that he won't think about if uh, he's going to go to market on, on his own. Uh, I'm trying to think other things that uh, folks make mistakes on. Another classic example is what I would call um, deal fatigue. <laughs> a client uh, of mine some years ago entered into a transaction and there were so many iterations of the, uh, the transaction documents. At some point, their eyes just kind of glazed over and they didn't really read the documents thoroughly. And that actually wound up, wound up biting them in the rear end a couple years down the road when uh, some things got triggered and they weren't really reading it. Now, obviously, the attorney is supposed to make sure that everything is in place. But when you're talking about you know, papering a document, it's important that the, the participants be involved. Even if that means you have another cup of coffee, even if it's at one o'clock in the morning, it's your interest that you're protecting. So make sure you're reading those documents. So uh, a long, actually a good segue into my next question for you, which is when a, a buyer is looking at vetting a, a company that they're interested in perhaps purchasing, what are they looking at? Like, you know, as maybe it's as far as like um, the financials, the operations, things are in hand. What are kind of the top things that they want to see are being managed well and that are um, the current ownership is being transparent about? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So it's, it's about understanding the opportunity. So your intermediary will do a great job for you in presenting 
your story, laying out the business case, laying out the upside. So in a lot of times what that will consist of is adjustments to your historic financial statements because as businesses are operating, maybe there are some non-recurring or extraordinary items that are incurred over the course of the historic period. Your intermediary will help you identify what those are and they can be added back to reflect a more normalized, stabilized cash flow, if you will. So you hit that on the head on the historic side. The forecast is where the rubber really meets the road. So when I talk about valuation, uh, historic performance is important, but what really matters most in valuation is what's down the road. So it's really the net present value of the future benefits that that business is going to derive over the next five, 10, 30 years. <laughs> so um, having a history that you can show of here's what we forecasted, here's what we hit, and ideally you're close or better, that certainly gives a buyer comfort because at the end of the day, uh, they're making an assessment on risk. And the greater the risk, the lower the valuation you're going to get. So those are important things. But other things that, um, that people have to be aware of as, as they're going through this process that buyers are going to think about is leadership. You alluded to it before in terms of are there other folks who are capable of handling the business if the owner gets hit by that bus that we talked about? Uh, systems, deep dive into customer relationships. What do they look like? Are they going to be retained? Uh, a lot of times the owner and or key shareholders need to be retained to facilitate a transition. And sometimes transactions include something that's called contingent consideration, also known as an earnout, where uh, you'll get a greater valuation for your business, but it's not going to necessarily be cash on the barrelhead day one. You're going to have to stick around for three to five years or whatever the agreed upon terms are, and then earn that additional contingent consideration over time based on how well that business performs. In other words, you've got to have some skin in the game going forward. Mm -hmm. So, and personalities, right? So, and that goes for both sides. So you've got to remember as a business owner, when you're being vetted by these buyers, uh, it, it, it's sometimes probably easy to get sucked into the idea that you're the one who's performing and you're the one that has to demonstrate and answer all of their questions, but you're allowed to ask questions too. And until you do the deal, it's still your company. And I, I found from working with my clients over the years, it's very important that they get the at-bats and ask questions in terms of how, how is the business going to be managed going forward? I, one particular owner that comes to my mind was very keen on, on making sure that the employees were protected. He felt that the employees were their family. And he was not going to entertain an offer from a buyer that planned to make big staff reductions, no matter what that meant, even if that meant a greater valuation for him. So there's a whole host of things, as I alluded to before, in building that confidential information memorandum. And that's just the paper documentation. And then it's the dynamics of the meetings that take place. So there's there's a whole host of things. We could do a whole show on that. <laughs> I bet, yes. Um, we actually do have, along these lines, we do have a question from Joanne on LinkedIn. I don't know if you're going to be able to answer this question specifically, but we can probably just touch on what you can answer. So what about a single-person distributor, she asked. So the distributor, of course, is those who are selling. They're buying promotion products from suppliers, and they're imprinting them and selling to end users, selling about 250k a year, no children involved past it to what if anything is a company like this worth? What could you what could you tell her about that? Yeah, well, the first thing I would tell her is I would never, ever, ever give an estimate flying blind. I don't believe in doing back of the napkin or, or back of the envelope valuations. There's a lot of questions here because are they, they're doing 250 a year historically. And that's what I was saying that the real value is what's going forward. What does that look like? So is it 250 forever? Or is there a story here where maybe it's going to be more than 250 next year or less than 250 next year? What, what can we realistically expect? 
so I see the note here and it says we have no children, nobody involved to pass it on. Uh, given that we're talking about something that's all called relatively small business at $250,000 a year, that's probably more uh, suitable for a business broker than I would, what I would call an investment banker. So the best thing that one could do would be to check out a couple of those business brokers and see if they have any experience in that particular industry and what their experience has been in terms of transactions that have taken place in that space. And we have access to databases that we can identify recent transactions. So that'll give you a general rule of thumb for what multiples are being paid. But then you've got to make those considerations that we talked about in selling a house for, you know, how close are we to the grocery store? How close are we to transportation? What are the nuances about this particular business that may justify a higher multiple than what we're seeing as a median, for instance, or maybe warrant a lower multiple than what we're seeing in recent transactions? So long winded way, I'd say it depends, but because there's, there are a lot of considerations here. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, and thanks, Joanne. Yeah. A lot of variables to consider. Um, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. And, and just a last question for you. Um, there might be some other audience questions, but in the meantime, if anybody is kind of at that stage now that's listening, that's saying, you know, I'm, I'm at that stage where I, I want to really start being active and, and proactive, I should say, about this exit phase, getting really serious about it, really starting to line up those docs. Um, what are the first steps to take for anyone considering that phase, um, you know, sooner rather than later? What would you say to where should they start? I would say kudos to them for thinking in advance and, and planning because that's the most important thing you can do. If you're planning for this kind of a thing, you're always going to be better off than if you don't. So uh, we talked about that team of advisors that you're going to need to put together in this whole process, right? So your intermediary, your accountant, your attorney, and your wealth advisor. Start talking to them. Start chatting them up, letting them know this is something that you're thinking about. Take their temperature on it. Get their opinions on it start asking around for who are the other people to, to fill into those spaces. So if you're not working with a, a transaction attorney right now, maybe your accountant has one. Or if you're not working with an accountant that you're feeling comfortable with, uh, maybe the investment banker can recommend one. So start by having those conversations, start to put your deal team in place and keep everybody in the loop as you work through that process of getting yourself ready to go to market. Because again, I can't emphasize it enough. It's a process to get ready. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Dave. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. And for more information on financial planning for your business, please head to asicentral.com slash news. Thanks for listening. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Dave.